Tonight's uh, subject, hello, hello, one, two, three, we're adjusting all the machinery here. Hello, test, hello, test. Uh, it's all part of the, the the electronic communication of which we are all indubitably a part, right? Hello, one, two, three, there, very good, very good, very good. Uh, I, uh, tonight's, uh, the tonight's uh, thing here is liable to be of some, some, uh, distaste to some of the more, uh, wait, I'm just uh, a little bit there. I'm uh, working away here. Hello there, that's a little better. Hello there, test one, two, three, four. Hello there. Hello, I'm sending out our tentacles in the direction of Connecticut now. There, there, we got it. There. Uh, I'd just uh, like to say as a disclaimer that uh, certain uh, portions of tonight's uh, uh, effort will be of some distaste to many of you simply because it's of the nature of existence itself. Uh, for example, today... Uh, I found the... Yeah, hey, I had a, a great uh, a great uh, moment here. Just a few moments ago, I'm going through Times Square, and there is my book. And, you know, the Ferrari in the bedroom, right there in the middle of all the... You know, right there in the middle of all that stuff down there at Bookmasters, you know, right there in Times Square. Did you see it there, George? You better see it. I'll tell you there. It's kind of great to walk down through Times Square and realize you got the world under your thumb. <laughs> yeah. But uh, one, we, we, we must say, though, that tonight's uh, effort here is, is somewhat uh, somewhat distasteful to many people. In fact, tonight's subject is sin, basically. Sin. My good old sin. You've all enjoyed it in the past. You've all studied it in the past, no doubt. That's one thing that man studies endlessly. Sin. Now, uh, in our time, of course, we're trying to do away with sin by declaring everything legal. Therefore, there can be no sin, which is a <laughs> that's, that's a fact. You agree, George? That that's one way to eliminate sin is just simply say it don't exist. So then it doesn't. Uh, and uh, I, I say that I applaud man's efforts in that direction. Now, whether or not he'll be successful is a matter of uh, conjecture at this point, because man also is bugged with another thing which uh, he has never yet been able to successfully deal with, and that's conscience. But now that, now that is something that I would love to see done away with. Now, <laughs> I mean, just, it, it just realize that if you'd done away with sin, if you did away with sin, you wouldn't accomplish anything because your conscience would still keep down there, you know, and the, down in the guts would keep yelling and you know, kicking and hollering and weeping and crying and banging away on your rib cage. And uh, it, it, it wouldn't do you much good to get, get rid of sin. Now, if you could get rid of conscience, it would be a totally different situation. Because then it wouldn't matter whether you got rid of sin or not. If you got rid of conscience, because kind of, yeah, you know, everything would be. Uh, and so tonight uh, we're going to deal with that uh, problem. Of course, many of you like to think that the 
sin has already uh, been dealt with. It's, it's no longer in existence, right? Many people feel this. However, there may be forces over which we have little or no control, <laughs> which are at work. Now, this is something I am not prepared to discuss because I am just as much in the dark as everybody else in the world is in the dark about this. Those great, vast, shifting forces that seem to constantly move across the horizon of man's existence without his, uh, without his control and often without his knowledge. Now, uh, uh, we will, uh, let's uh, take, for example, uh, well, now, uh, let's take, for example, the slob world. The slobs have always enjoyed sin, one way or another. Now, uh, if you can imagine yourself back in, uh, in the Colosseum in the days of Rome, and uh, the, the crowds are cheering, and the lions are out there running around chomping on them bones and, uh, you know, knocking down them Christians, and uh, the crowds roaring. Well, what were those crowds? What were they? Were they sport fans? <laughs> well, uh, they were just uh, your ordinary walking around slob. You know, he just wherever the action went, he went. He applauds. That's all there is to it, you know. He was just out there for a good Sunday afternoon, you know, in the sun. He'd come in there, you know, with the popcorn or whatever it is that they sold at that time. He had a program, and he sat down and squatted there with his toga and you know the family around there. Some of them he brought their own lunch, you know, a little Colonel Saunders chicken and. And they sat there and cheered, and out come them lions, and he was just roaring because it was, it was you know, it was, a, it was the action. That's all. It was just where the action is, right? And uh, his, his, his kind is, uh, is with us by the millions today. Nothing has changed. Uh, it's just that the action has changed a little bit. They don't have the lions and the Christians, but they have the, the equivalent of it, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, he's just a walking around type. And tonight... Uh, I, uh, I, I see the slob world is beginning to uh, break out in every possible direction. So, uh, George, uh, I see we have, uh, you have that queued up in there. Uh, I, tonight, uh, to salute uh, all of you who are really in favor of sin and uh, also in favor of its abolishment. Uh, you see, this is another problem. We, we're constantly faced with that, uh, with that apparent dichotomy. On the one hand, sin is a groovy thing, you know. Uh, to do it, you know. Now, if sin was abolished, would it be as much fun? Well, that's a hard question. In fact, the guy wrote me, he said, Shepard, the other night, he said, as a working uh, jersicologist, he says, uh, you're one of the few, he says, you know, that we have today, we have, uh, uh, we have criminologists, we have uh, uh, China experts. He says, you're one of the very few working Jersey experts. You're a jersicologist. And he said, uh, you should know that, that we in Jersey here, the passing of a great of a great uh, Jersey uh, folk right has just passed in the history. And, of course, reading the letter, I thought to myself, well, what's he talking about? And he says, well, I'll tell you what I'm talking about. He says that one of the great puberty rights among particularly males of Jersey was at, the, at a very crucial point in his life was to fake, fake an ID and go to uh, Pearl River and get, get bombed. Um, you see, you couldn't drink until <laughs> you were a certain age in Jersey. He said, but now what do they do? They make it, they make it legal to drink now at, at age 18 in Jersey. Do so you realize what that's done? That's taking care of that folk right now. No point. He said it was, a, it was a tradition when you were 17 to go out and fake your, you know, or 18 of thereabouts, and you fake your ID, and you sneak in the Pearl River, and you get yourself bombed to the skull, you know, the beer running out of your ears. And at that point, you were officially a man. 
but you can't do that anymore. No way. Well, that's a, that's a part of the Slob world has passed into the great beyond, a great oblivion of a Slob rights. And so tonight, George, would you please get that record set up there? Uh, here is here is one of the newest efforts in the Slob world to bring happiness and light and sunshine to every Slob everywhere. Please listen carefully. I think I'll I think I'll set in with Jews, Harper. that uh, effort is uh, very serious. In heaven, there is no beer. And that's why we drink it here. That's right. The great day comes when he, the slob who is singing the song, uh, passes into the great beyond. The one great, uh, the one great uh, regret he'll have is all his friends are going to remain behind drinking up all the beer. Yeah, in heaven, there is no beer. That's why we drink it here. A lot of tea, 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 tea. A lot of tea, tea, tea. I told you that tonight's thing was going to be distasteful, and also it, it touches upon a, a serious a problem of our time, sin. Have to remind you, this is WOR, New York. <laughs> oh, there's many kinds of sin, friends. Many kinds of sin. Yes, this is WOR, New York, indeed. Uh, would you please hit the money button, George? Filthy Luger. It's a misty night. Walking along Cedar Street, hand in hand, are Andy and Betsy. Know what Andy's doing besides being nervous about how he can kiss Betsy goodnight? <laughs> he's sneaking a lifesaver. And not even Betsy will know he snuck it until he kisses her. Mm. Wow. <laughs> Lemon, got another lifesaver? Girls are why boys should always carry plenty of lifesavers.
Lifesavers is a registered trademark. It's a curious spot. Curious. Curious. And the thought of the Lifesaver is primarily an aphrodisiac. Nor therapeutic. Or <laughs> that goes. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. Uh, say, uh, speaking of things that uh, are of uh, unquestionable interest, this coming Sunday, January 21st, is Ball Day at the Long Island Coliseum. This is the first time I ever heard of a thing like this, actually. You ever hear them having a ball day at a, at a, at a basketball game? That's, that's new. I never heard of anything like that. All those who buy a ticket for the New York Nets playing the Dallas Chaparrales at 2.05 p.m., will be eligible to purchase an official size and weight Nets red, white, and blue basketball, regularly selling for six bucks for only two fifty. You know, you can get one for two and a half. Come see the Nets take on the Chaparrales in the beautiful Long Island Coliseum off the Meadowbrook Parkway in Uniondale, and for only two bucks and a half, purchase an official Nets red, white, and blue regulation size and weight basketball. That's this Sunday, January twenty-first, Long Island Coliseum at two o five p.m. Hey, can you imagine the crowd out there all sitting there with their new basketballs? And there's about 6,000 guys with basketballs. And then at a very cru- crucial moment in the play, all 6,000 of them throw their ball out on the... <laughs> you know, that actually happened at a, at a uh, at one of the uh, ball game, ball days in the Major League Baseball here uh, last year that... Uh, yeah, it, was a, it, it caused a great disputed play. In fact, there was a lot of hoopla. It was out on the West Coast. You know, they had these ball days when all the kids come in and get a free ball. And uh, somebody socked a ball, uh, the opposite team, of course. Somebody drilled one way to hell out in left field, see, right under the scoreboard. And the ball is bouncing. And with that, you know, they're, they're going to lose the ball game. You know, they, 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 two runs are coming around. The whole thing, you know, it's in the 10th inning. About 12,000 kids threw baseballs out on the field. And they all, you know, converged on the left fielder. Amid that crowd of balls was the ball bouncing towards the scoreboard. And so the guy fielded about five balls, you know, just out of pure reflex. <laughs> He's out there fielding everything. But, you know, after all, when you're a pro, you, you work on reflexes. He's fielding balls all over the place. And, man, they blew the whistle. But it was a fantastic moment. You know what they had to do? That's a whole new thing, you know. They, they, nobody had to run into a, a problem like that. And the umpires conferred sent telegrams to Bowie Kuhn or whatever his name is, you know, the whole thing. And uh, they finally called the runs back. Gave the guy a ground rule double. And uh, one of the runs was called back. And at the next inning, that only tied the score. See, the next inning, the home team scored three runs. And uh, it's still before the courts. Wouldn't that be great to see out a basketball court? Hey, you know, that brings up a point. You know, they got this red, white, and blue ball out there, you know. Uh, you've seen those uh, those balls they play with in that league. And, uh, of course, you know, there's a big hoopla now about playing the Star Spangled Banner before before sports uh, things, you know. And uh, can you imagine the two guys are real bugged, uh, ball players, you know, and refuse to play with a red, white, and blue ball. They got the <laughs> They got the <laughs> They have to have a third word ball, you know, a third world ball, and uh, <laughs> and uh, oh, we're, we're we're getting into some very uh, very big problems. You know, can't you see this big, big, uh, this big uh, six foot nine inch uh, forward? You know, averaging thirty seven points a game, and uh, suddenly he refuses to play. He just refuses to go out on a out on a uh, 
gone on the floor. They just won't, he won't go. And they said, well, well how come you won't go, Stilt or uh, Biggie or whatever his name is, you know? And he says, he ain't going to play with that ball. And he said, what do you mean you're not going to play with that ball? He had a red, white, and blue ball. ain't going to play with that. He said, what kind of ball will you play with? Well, everybody's playing. It's just a ball. He said, ain't no ball. That's red, white, and blue ball. He said, that's a red, white, and blue ball. He said, well, come on. you got to get out there. We're gonna, the, the game is going to be for you. I don't care. They're going to forfeit. The, I don't care what they forfeit in no game. I ain't going to play with no red, white, and blue ball. So what kind of ball you want? He said, well, I want a third word ball. Third world ball. And then, of course, there's going to be a lot of action. Guys are going to strike. And, oh, I can see it happening. Can't you, George? <laughs> These are groovy times. Uh, speaking of uh, things that are, are uh, moving along kind of good here, we'd like to recommend uh, the House of Chan. We got a note from a guy the other day who said he went to the House of Chan. He says, and by God, my nose did sweat. He said, that food is good. That's eating food. And uh, if you uh, would like to visit the place where they mean it about their food, you know, a lot of places are much more serious about the check than they are about the food. Uh, let's keep your priorities straight. Uh, oh, I've gone to places like that. You get this great big check in that little itty-bitty hamburger. Have you, George? Well, I mean, they don't call it hamburger. They call it beef roulade, places like that, with Orvernay's sauce. But that's an itty-bitty hamburger where I come from. And I would like to suggest that the, that the priorities are right down at the House of Chan. <laughs> They're really serious about the food. And I think you'll find it uh, reasonably priced. I mean, you know, all considered. Because after all, your demands are outrageous, too, friend, uh, wherever you are, whatever you do. And I would like to suggest you visit them. It's the House of Chan, 52nd Street and 7th Avenue, right in the heart of the action belt. All right? Oh, yeah. Oh, everything. It's all within reach there. You can buy yourself. You know that right down the street from the House of Chan is, is one of my favorite places. You know, the House of Chan's at 52nd and 7th. You know, that's right in that whole big Broadway Times Square area. Well, right down the street, one block south, roughly, is a place where they sell rubber chickens. And uh, all these uh, sneezing powders and stuff like that. Have you ever seen those shops? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can buy, you can buy, uh, yeah, you can buy, uh, you can buy fake noses, you know, with the big glasses on them. Uh, you can buy false beards. All kinds of great stuff down there. You can buy little things that you put under people's uh, coffee tables that look like the dog has uh, lost control of his uh, lower elementary tract and has laid it right down there in the middle of the oriental rug. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, you can buy all that great stuff there. I, uh, I, I, uh, a couple of uh, the traumatic experiences I've had in my life revolved around that particular shop. I, one time I was standing there. I, I'm not going to tell you the story. i just let you know that uh, I was standing there looking in the window of that shop one day. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I'm a great fan of uh, sneezing powder, whoopee cushions, stuff like that. See, and I'm looking in the window and, and this uh, elegant salesman that I knew here at the station, the elegant man, he looked like uh, he looked like a UN delegate, that kind. Comes up to me and he says, uh, he says, hey, he said, uh, it's a coincidence meeting you here. He said, I had some business in this place, and I said, you do? You know, you don't think of guys like that buying sneezing powder, you know, exploding cigars and stuff like that. And we go in there, and uh, he says something to the clerk, and. And the clerk says, well, of course we have it. Do you want the 36 by 28 size, or do you want the big uh, the big 42 by 37-inch size? He said, well, give me the medium size. 38 by 22 is good enough for me. And they whipped it on him, and it was a big sponge rubber. <laughs> it was pretty great. It was a sponge rubber bath mat, George. 
And uh, there was ne- a kind of a special bath mat, you know, that you put next to the next to the tub when you come hopping out of your little shower with the bubble baths all over you, you know, and you step on this you step on this bath mat. Well, the bath mat was kind of great, George. It was a uh, Let's put it this way: it was it was sponge rubber, but it was made in the form of say about thirty-seven different uh, all-in-rows uh, mammary glands in full, true-to-life, real color. And uh, I just couldn't imagine this guy running around on top of that bath mat, you know, getting his kicks that way. I suppose uh, there are certain types to do, but the, he bought this thing, and they rolled it all up, you know, in this paper. It looked like butcher's wrapping paper, and he took it out. It's rubber, you know. It's all rolled up there. Later on, I had a terrible experience with that bath mat, which I will not go into at that time, because it was, uh, well, I might as well briefly tell you what happened. We went down to this uh, elegant French restaurant on the east side, me and this guy, see, and uh, we went in, and he checked it at the check the check room there with along with a coat you know and if you yeah, put it right in the check room there and we go into this place and we go into it's a, it's a true it's a true businessman's lunch joint you know uh, they do nothing but the expense account stuff and I go in there you know and I boy this is great you know you the filet of sole and the whole everything you know and they come along with the wine and they're laying their martinis on you and this guy's he, he didn't order martinis by the by the singular by the glass Never, it's the first time I ever saw a guy get a bucket of martinis. They just come in a bucket. Big silver bucket, you know. He's dipping them out with a ladle. And, uh, you know, he dips about three buckets full down. And uh, by that time, you know, he didn't care whether the filet of sole comes or not. You know, it's just all academic. And, and uh, he's hollering and whooping it up, you know, waving at all the other account executives in the place. We're doing the same thing, you know. And there's this golden glow in there. And it's kind of dark in this place. So finally, we... we we have to go. It's uh, you know after all it's lunch time and it's now about four thirty. We only been out to lunch for the last eight and a half hours, so we uh, time to go. See, he used to come you know come checking in here, uh, you know to make the last uh, come in the last five minutes of work day, make sure they all knew he had been there at work that day, and then check out again. You know, go home. But uh, we're standing out in the street there, and all of a sudden he turns to me and he's bagged at ears. And he said, "Hey, he said, uh, I forgot to get my package out there." Uh, you, you go and get the pa- I'll get a cab while you go and get the package. So he gives me the, the check, you know, and these little round things. It says 42 on it or something. And I, I go into the check there in the check room. All these guys, these elegant men are coming out of the French restaurant, you know, a place called La Diable, some, you know, elegant place. And uh, everything is a la carte there, everything. Even the check is a la carte. You have to pay special extra to get, get, get a check, you know. <laughs> So I come walking in there. They charge you, you know, for the pencil the guy uses to write out the check even. So I come in, and I walk up to the to the check room girl. You know, this little this little closet, and this fantastic chick is back there handing out the clothes, and I'm in with all these other elegant people, and I give her the number 42. Well, she hands me this, this package, you know. It's a long package, great big thing, you know. It's a bath mat, and it's all wrapped up in this, this butcher paper. And just as she hands it to me, I'll be damned. You know, that, 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 that the rubber band that was holding the paper on comes off, and this thing unrolls right there in front of everybody. And there I'm standing there holding that bath mat with all them... Well, uh, I just wanted to tell you, it wasn't one of the better moments of my life. Everybody's looking at me, you know, and I felt like, what, well, you know, and one guy, I hear snickering and people nudging each other in the elbows, and one girl got, got you know, turned around. She said, she says, I never saw anything like this. And, and she stalks off to the ladies' room, and I start to roll it up, and it kept flying out. You know, have you ever tried to roll up sponge rubber? It ain't easy. And uh, <laughs> there I stood. Well, 
You know, that's uh, that all that uh, that neighborhood there now has great uh, has great uh, traumatic values in my life. I don't go near that neighborhood much more, you know, because I see it across the street sometimes. You can buy those bath mats in there, George. Now, if you're a lady type and you're also sick, uh, you can get a bath mat that has other things, but we won't get into that. It's very sick, the world. <laughs> oh, I, 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 there I go. I'm taking a value judgment. And by the way, speaking of a value judgment, I think we've done all the commercials, haven't we? Sure we have. Absolutely. And now, tonight, now, we've, we've, got, the, we've got a very difficult thing to deal with here. We, you know, we've got spies all over. You know that. And uh, one of our spies lives down in Asheville, North Carolina. Now, he says, he used to live up here in New York, see, and he says, you know, up there in New York, you just, you just, you guys, and I have to agree with him, he says, you guys don't even know what's going on in the world, really. You just know what's going on in New York, and only that, barely. He says, uh, it's very different out here. And uh, he sent me this clipping out of the Asheville Citizen, which is the Asheville paper. And if you don't know where Asheville is, that's where Thomas Wolfe, you know, not the Thomas, the, the, the current Thomas, with another Tom Wolf. you know, the guy that wrote Of Time and the River and uh, Look Homeward Angel and The Web and the Rock and all that stuff. See, he come out of there and he wrote what, uh, you know, what kind of a place it was. Well, if you think it's changed, as many people tend to do, they, they hear me tell a story, see, and they say, why, that can't be. That don't happen in Queens. So they figure it must be that I'm talking about the good old golden days, you know. <laughs> well, uh, l- listen to this, friends. I got a I got a note right out of right out of Asheville. It says uh, from a distance. Now listen carefully. Now if you if you're a sinner out there and you think you're going to escape un, untouched, unscathed, just want you to listen carefully to this. Now, from a distance, the roof of the large and substantial built Hobbs Street Church of Christ in this community looks as if its front end is adorned by a gigantic surrealistic gargoyle. I repeat that line. I didn't read it well. A gigantic, surrealistic gargoyle. Now, this is the church. You got the picture? It's a church. Closer scrutiny reveals the remains of a shattered church spire. You know, the spire, that's that thing that sticks up there, you know. It's shattered, and it's drooping like a half-peeled banana. I want you to picture that. The church spire is drooping over. And it's busted up it's like a half-peeled banana. Uh-huh. Why? Listen carefully. George, do you have that great big one there ready in there? The big noisy one? I will give you a cue. And when I hurl a lightning bolt at you, George, I want that I want that to come on big and hard. Now you got the picture. The church Fire is leaning over, right? Why? This church spire was struck by lightning immediately following a Wednesday evening prayer meeting. And just six days before, the minister's daughter won a beauty contest clad only in a bathing suit. <laughs> the heavens shall come lightning bolts, thunderbolts indeed, alas, shall smite the sinner. Wow! Wow! 
listen to that. That church was hit by lightning. Now, you just can't ignore it. That's a hint. <laughs> you just can't ignore that kind of a message. Well, when the church's four elders reacted to her victory, this chick, you know, that the minister's daughter won a bathing contest, a beauty contest dressed in a bathing suit. When the church's four elders reacted to her victory by firing her father, they fired the minister. Their reaction gloriously illustrated by a photo of the beautiful chick, Becky Marshall, adorned front pages of newspapers all over the nation. None of these elders has as yet pronounced the pre-beauty contest lightning strike a divine omen. But the ministerial substitute that they procured, now remember, there's a substitute minister they brought in, has done something of this sort. For two Sundays in a row, following the sacking of the other minister, yes, sir, the new minister has been making statements that the reason lightning struck the spire of the church was because the church was full of sinners. And they better straighten up. Among other things, his sermon recently cited the ominous fate of certain murmurers against the authority of Moses whom he described as a church elder. They were destroyed by heavenly fire. Many of you biblical students out there probably know this is absolutely according to the scriptures. That is true. Only a remnant of the congregation was present for this sermon because, <laughs> because they were getting a little scared. That sermon came after the lightning bolt. And now... Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of argument going on in this town as to whether lightning does strike sinners. Well, now wait a minute now. Don't laugh at that. See, look at George in there. See, he's, uh, George is a qualified sinner. He's in there laughing like mad. George, be careful. I would hate like hell to see you reduced to a giant cloud of gaseous matter in there. You know, pow, nothing but blue argon, neon, and there's George. Uh, don't you laugh. No, no. Now, you see, I think the reason some of you laughed is that you have never seen, you have never seen the wrath of whatever those powers are out there deal with uh, with a true sinner. Well, now, now, wait a minute now. Let me tell you, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you a story. You, you know what happened? One time, uh, no, no, nope, I do not mess with divine providence, friends. Now, I don't necessarily subscribe to it, but I don't mess with it. I mean, I, I ain't going to believe something that I don't see. I ain't going to believe in something I don't know about. But on the other hand, I ain't going to run no risk that uh, you just never know, right? I tell you as I sit here in this pew, friends, everywhere, look, I see sin. <clears throat> Excuse me, I got carried away there for a moment, folks. I, you know, you get a, you put a microphone in front of a guy, and the next thing you know, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's admonishing the world. I'm telling you, that's, that's a terrible, terrible syndrome. It's awful. That's the electronic messiah syndrome. Oh, can be can be mean. Get you down in your right down here in your knuckle bones. The knuckle bones is attached to the wrist bones. The wrist bones. I excuse me, that's another one. You mean you never heard that? Oh, the knuckle bones is attached to the wrist bone, and they is attached to the elbow bone, and they is attached to the shoulder bone. Yes, everywhere you go, there is a plan. Well, I, I don't want <laughs> I don't want to get carried away there, but I'll tell you this. 
I, I, the first time that I began to have my doubts was when I was a caddy. Now, you would not, you, 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 you say to yourself, what do you mean? What's, what's a caddy got to do with, uh, with sin and damnation? With, the uh, with the divine retribution? Well, I'll tell you what it has to do with it. Me and Schwartz and Flick were caddies. We got ourselves a summer job. And we were caddying at this place called Woodmar Country Club. Oh, it's elegant, you know. They had this great big country club clubhouse there, and all the members would sit around on the porch and drink whiskey sours and carouse and sin. Saturday night, you know, they'd have these dances. Of course, being a caddy, I was never invited to any of this stuff. We just saw it. We were always working around out by the caddy house, watching the stuff go on in this fantastic place. And we were, you know, we're hanging around the caddy house. We'd look out. Sometimes they'd have big parties on Saturday afternoon. All these girls would come, and they'd walk around out in the garden back of the country club, and they'd drink all these alcoholic beverages. And once in a while, me and Schwartz and Flick would see them actually do something down by the, well, there was a water hazard right off the second hole. And uh, they had a lot of weeds around there, and there was a lot more than lost golf balls in them weeds some nights, I'll tell you that. And we'd see that go on, see? And let I, uh, to put it mildly, this country club was a cesspool of total libidinous, libidinous sin and, and, and degradation. And it was groovy. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And so me and Schwartz and Flick used to go out there on an early Saturday morning. You know, we that's when all the uh, you know all these uh, foursomes would come out early in the morning. See, and that's when you made the dough over the weekend. Wasn't much shaking on a Wednesday or like on a Thursday. You know, once in a while you'd get a couple of foursomes going out, but uh, it was just a lot of sitting around during the week. And I had just made Class A caddy. Now, for those of you who don't know much about the caddy world, there are several grades of caddies. There's the Class B caddy, there's the Class C caddy, and then, of course, there's the Class A. Now, the Class A is the, is a, well, it's the highest you can go in the caddy world. Now, why, what is a Class A caddy? Well, a Class A caddy has established the fact that he has a good eye. For one thing, he doesn't lose many balls. And when, uh, you know, when that duffer gets up there and he's teeing up, and you don't know what direction the ball is going into. It's easy to find a ball driven by, say, Jack Nicklaus, because he knows where it's going, and you know where it's going, and that's where it goes. That's the difference. But when you're caddying for a little short, fat guy that works at the savings and loan, you know, and he plays two rounds of golf every four years, you just better wear yourself a tin hat, and, and I might point out you don't know what direction that ball is going into, and it can go back of him. I've seen him drive him right back of him. Fantastic. I never thought it was physically possible. Yeah, I've seen guys draw. I, I, I saw a guy one time who came up with such a hook, I never would have believed there was such a hook possible. He hit a hook so bad that that ball circled around us four times. It was like a plane that was in, 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 uh, in orbit over JFK. That ball just made four complete circles around us and then went 200 yards down the fairway. I mean, you know, they... Uh, so, so as a Class A caddy, you have proved that you can you can spot the ball, and also you, you, you're supposedly you know something about golf. So when that duffer's out there, you know, and he's he's uh, he's uh, you know he's 40 or 50 yards down that <laughs> that that 600 yard fairway, and he turns to you and says, "What club should I use?" 
Well, you know, the, your first, Im, you know, your first impulse is to tell him to get an eighty millimeter mortar and try firing it out there because he ain't going to get it no other way, you know. Uh, so you, you 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 can tell him what kind of club, see. So I had gotten promoted to Class A caddy. Schwartz was a Class A caddy. Flick was still a Class B caddy, <laughs> which incidentally had a different colored pin. And so on this particular Saturday, where the divine retribution set in, now we're, we're out there, and we're caddying around, see? Well, caddies have a tendency, when, when they're with a... With, this is a particular type of caddy, of which I was one, roughly sneaky. Uh, that when you go out with certain foursomes, you know, they've got nothing but dough, and, you know, there's a certain kind of guy that comes out with the alligator skin bag. He's got uh, maybe 315 clubs. Uh, he's got a little folding umbrella. You know, the whole work, see? Uh, he's got towels hanging out the outside, two, uh, two extra pairs of shoes with gold shoelaces, the whole bit, see? Well, this kind of guy tends to have uh, plenty of golf balls. In fact, he comes out maybe four or five dozen golf balls. Well, now you see your duty as a caddy to steal as many golf balls from him as you can. Well, now, I knew that was wrong. I knew it. Well, how we stole these golf balls was we pretend we'd lost it. See, so he hit a shot way down there in the rough. Now, you know where that ball is. And you'd, you'd, you'd go charging after you'd say, boy, that, 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 one, that one got away. Well, there's a certain kind of guy after a couple of martinis. He don't care whether he loses the ball or not. You know, he says, well, let's drop another one, kid. Let's get going. And so he drops another ball. Well, you, you learn how to, you know, you, you mark the ball, see? So you come back later to get the ball where it's, where you hit it, see? Well, we go out on this first big round that morning, me and Schwartz and Flick. We got a foursome, and there was another kid. There's four of us caddies working with this foursome. Well, I had a patsy. I had a chicken of the worst order, see? This guy come with five dozen balls, $2 balls, you know? With, <laughs> oh, you know, and, and, and so we're working this for all we got. Because we know we're only going to get about a 40-cent tip anyway, see, so the balls are part of the tip. Well, I had stashed the ball under a big tree right next to the eighth green. You know, the eighth hole there, this big tree there, and I kicked the ball in there, and I knew where it was, and I ground it down with my heel, see, kicked a little grass over it. Well, after the round is over, me and Schwartz and Flick, we start going back over the course, picking up the balls that we had stashed. Now, for you golfers out there who are being disillusioned by this little discourse, I have to point out the very thing that you had suspected was happening all along was happening all along. That's where you lost a lot of your balls. So we're out there, and it's a beautiful morning, see. It's about 10.30 in the morning. We've just completed our first round. Each of us has got his 40-cent tip, and we're going out to pick up our balls, see. So I'm with Schwartz. And I can hear the sound of revelry behind me. They're having a big party, and all those girls are hanging around down and hunkering down in the bushes with all those guys. They're drinking the martinis and the screwdrivers, and, and sin is everywhere. And me and Schwartz are heading out towards the eighth hole. I said, Schwartz, I got three balls out along the eighth, and a couple of them down by the ninth, and I got one down by the eleventh, and two of them down by the fifteenth. See, you don't want to push it too much. I could have stolen all three dozen of his balls, see, but, uh, you know, I pick up six, seven of them. That's enough. Half a dozen, see. So I'm heading towards this tree where that ball was right under the tree. Well, about halfway along the eighth fairway, I feel a few little drops of rain, which occasionally happen. Summertime, see? Well, I'm about maybe 20 or 30, maybe 40 yards away from that tree. And Schwartz is walking along the fairway on the other side and picking up a ball that he has, you know, hunched a little bit on. I'm walking up to that tree... When all of a sudden, without any warning, all of a sudden, without no warning at all, 
I hear this rumble, and then... Hello, this is Kitty Carlisle, and I'm asking you to get involved. Get involved with the Greater New York Blood Program as a Red Cross volunteer. We need volunteers desperately. Volunteers who will handle all the non-medical jobs on blood mobile units. You will register donors, prepare labels, serve refreshments, keep records, assist the nurses in all phases of the unit, and give our donors who are very special people, that little extra attention that means so much. It's interesting, and more important, it is enormously rewarding, for you are directly involved in saving lives. More people are giving blood, so we need more Red Cross volunteers to help process them. Join us, you and your friends. If you can give as little as half a day a week, we need you. Call us at the Red Cross, 787-1000, the Red Cross. And thank you for volunteering in this life-saving program. This is Arlene Francis. Please join me each weekday afternoon at 1.15 for some very interesting and I hope enlightening conversation. Uh, we'll visit with people from theater, politics, fashion, all exciting individuals who talk openly about their own unique lives. Be with us every weekday afternoon at 1.15 here on WOR. The Veterans Administration reminds veterans who are eligible for GI home loans that loans are now available for the purchase of mobile homes as well as conventional homes. Once the loan is repaid, the veteran is again eligible for a loan on a house. For full information, contact the nearest VA office. W.O.R. New York.